0: I love Shell Federal Credit Union. You belong here with 11 locations now to serve you $250 cash back on all auto loans. Auto rates as low as 1.99% APR. Same rates for new, used, and refinanced vehicles. And people approve the loans, not computers. You know, they look at your entire situation. The credit score just determines your rate, not if you're approved. Be sure to ask about 90 days deferred payments. For details or to apply online, check out shellfcu.org.
1: Hi, folks. I'm Steve Lichtai, executive producer of podcasts at Slate. And before we get to the show, I want to ask you a small favor. This Slate podcast is part of the Panoply Network. And right now, Panoply is trying to learn more about our podcast listeners.
2: We want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that just takes a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out,
1: it'll help Panoply continue to make great podcasts about the things you love and the things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm slash survey, or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply, P-A-N-O-P-L-Y dot F-M
2: slash survey, or click the link in the show notes. And thanks.
3: The Gist is sponsored by Audible, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audiblepodcast.com/slash the gist.
1: It's Wednesday, March eleventh, twenty fifteen, from Slate It's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In a ruling that could have chilling effects, for anyone thinking of chilling, to a Pharrell Williams-Robin Thicke tune, the estate of Marvin Gaye was awarded $7.3 million yesterday because Thicke and Williams ripped off. Gotta give it up. So we discussed this on the show a couple of weeks ago, and Chris Malamphy was in, and he said he didn't think it was plagiarism. He thought it was just some stylistic borrowing. Jury disagreed. Thicke for his part ripped off other recording artists like Shaggy and Peter Tosh and Bob Marley, really anyone who's ever done reggae, when he said, yeah, I was way too high to remember what was going on. Pharrell Williams basically wrote the song, Don't Blame Me. But you know, Williams, Thicke, they weren't the only ones who got something out of the value of Blurred Lines. Every wedding DJ who turned on Blurred Lines and was greeted by a woo woo! You know, if if that DJ played 30 songs a night and one of them's blurred lines, then I would say one-thirtieth of his salary rightfully belongs to the estate of Marvin Gaye. And every radio station that sold ads around that song, it was a cut to Marvin Gaye. And every guy who danced up to a girl in a club and was playing that song, if that guy got lucky with it, he owns a little bit of that luck to the estate of Marvin Gaye. And if, as a consequence... ...of a coupling as resulting from dance floor grinding to blurred lines... ...if as a consequence there was a child born... ...that kid owes some small part of his existence to the estate of Marvin Gaye. So when the NCAA punishes coaches, they vacate wins. They take the wins off the record books. And we should probably do that with blurred lines, billboard position. But that's not the only good stuff that a song gives us, right? Right you should give back some of the joy. You should give back some of the high five that you gave to a friend when Blurred Lines came on. You should give back a small portion of that eighth or ninth Slippery nipple or sex on a beach that you ordered down the shore when the party tune of the summer came on, or if you hated the song and changed the station and encountered that Imagine Dragons song instead, well, you owe a little bit of that pleasure to the estate of Marvin Gaye. You have got to give it up, people. Your joy has been slightly plagiarized, your cheer borrowed without permission, your uplift pilfered. That spring in your step, it was put there in some small measure by the estate of Marvin Gaye. For shame. For shame. On the show today, half of my spiel is of a personal nature, so I deleted it. But I will release an unprecedented half of my overall spiel to the public. And our cocktail guys come back, bringing the good news about bitters. But first... Frank Newport, editor-in-chief of Gallup, talks about which states are Republican and which states are Democrats. The results just might surprise you. Actually, I wanna be honest, the results will not surprise you, but the implication of those results just might surprise you. Yeah, it's not as punchy a tease, but you're here already, just keep listening. Massachusetts and Maryland are the most Democratic states. Wyoming and Utah are the most Republican states. No, this is not another edition of Things That I Knew Already. The Gallup organization has done a poll of the states or a study of the states to find out the leanings of each. And I think some of the implications, even if the headlines aren't shocking, some of the implications are pretty interesting. Joining me now is Frank Newport, the editor-in-chief of Gallup. Hello, Frank. Uh, Hello.
2: Good to be with you.
1: Yes. So as I look at the big Democratic states, other than Massachusetts and maryland what are we talking about california new york what else
2: The ones that you might expect, it's important to keep in mind that this is not voting. These are not the red-blue state uh, designations you hear a lot about. This is actually based on political identification. Right. We do so many interviews every year that we're able to break out every state in terms of party ID, and I think that's very important. And sure enough, Massachusetts and Maryland, as you mentioned, the two M states are at the top. Uh, Other states that are are, uh, heavily Democratic at the top of the list generally are on either the West Coast or the East Coast. Uh, Rhode Island, New York, Vermont, uh, Delaware, all on the East Coast, and California and Hawaii out on the West Coast. And the one interloper is uh, Illinois, which, of course, is in the middle of the country, but is, is one of the other strong Democratic states.
1: And the Republican states are, you've got a lot of the upper Midwest, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and then a couple of the Southern states. But then maybe not as many Southern states as the being the most Republican as we would think.
2: Uh, Yeah, and that's a very important point. Uh, When you look at the states where there's this significant tilt towards Republican identification, just what you said, they're up there in the upper Midwest from Montana, North Dakota, and coming on down uh, through South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Utah. But only two of the southern states, Tennessee and Alabama, do we put in that category. And that's important because when you look at the vote in a presidential election usually the southern states are all red they all they all vote the electoral college goes to the republican candidates uh, but these data suggested underneath that uh, party identification is actually competitive in a state like south carolina Georgia, Texas, uh, you know, the, the percent who identify as Republican is actually not that much higher than the percent who identify as Democrat. So right. That, that, that portends perhaps some change in the future.
1: The other thing it really shows to me is it should your study here should really be a wake up call for certain state parties who are not doing anything. And yet the underlying framework shows they really could be.
2: Uh, That's right. Uh, South Carolina is a good uh, state uh, to discuss. It's been considered a solid Republican state historically, but hey, uh, it, to some degree, it's now in play, and, and therefore people, uh, officials in that state, particularly on the Republican side, need to be careful. And there's some other states, North Carolina, of course, which is probably more of a swing state now than it has been in the past, It falls into the same kind of category. In general, however, we have seen a move away from Democratic identification. I want to make sure we get that point, and particularly going back to 08, uh, when Obama was elected coming off the tail end of a very unpopular Republican administration, you had a significant overall national net Democratic Party identification, and that's been eroding over the years. That's dramatic. Uh, Nationally, it was like a plus 30 back in 08, and now it's just a few points higher for the the Democrats and the Republicans. So identification in general is moving to be much more balanced than it has been historically.
1: Frank Newport, editor-in-chief of Gallup. Thank you so much, Frank. My pleasure. Today, The Gist is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audio book of your choice and a free 30 day trial membership. slash The Gist to qualify for that free trial, a book I'd like to recommend. Now, this guy was on the show, and I've got more than a few people saying, what a fascinating interview. His name is Bill Browder, and he talked about essentially being persecuted in Putin's Russia. He was one of the first people, well, he was the target of it, and also one of the first to really uncover how extensive Putin's tentacles reach, and we're seeing that just now. The audible version of his book, narrated by Adam Grupper, is really great. Grupper doesn't sound like Browder. I mean, you can go back to the past Gist show and hear how Browder sounds, but it really does communicate the book very well. He's not just a good reader. It's one of the cases where the tone of the reader matches the tone of the book somehow. I also want to note, and Andrea pointed this out to me, that Grupper's version as read is 14 hours and seven minutes. But if you got the German version, it's 15 hours and 42 minutes. So you save over an hour and a half just by listening in English. Yay, English. Audible also has a suite of sweet suite sweets like chapter navigation and annotated bookmarks and sleep mode and 30 second rewind and all the stuff, the best stuff that you would want for listening to an audio book. And it also comes with a great listen guarantee, which is if you don't like the book you choose, don't worry. You can exchange any book that you're not happy with for any title at any time with no questions asked. So that's a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. So we're joined again by our uh, cocktail connoisseurs, our experts Peter Thomas Fornatel and Chris Wirtz. we're going to delve into the world of bitters.
3: Pete, what are bitters? Bitters are a supposedly medicinal, most definitely delicious uh, additive to cocktails typically. They consist of bittering agents and then various herbs and other flavorings. And they can really transform a drink in a variety of different ways. Towards the bitter, yes, mostly? Well, not only towards the bitter, though certainly drying out some of your uh, sweetness in a cocktail is one of their purposes. But you can also pick up all kinds of other little flavors here and there that can increase a drink's uh, umami or mouthfeel, or even just take it flavor-wise in a different direction.
1: Now, Angostura bitters are the best-known bitters. You know, 20 years ago, there's maybe the only kind of bitters you'd find the most grocery shelves. Are they actually all flavor of bitters or is they li- are they like what bazooka calls original flavor
3: <laughs> they are they're aromatic bitters they 're a category unto to themselves and they are truly and duly the babe ruth it 's not like all these other bitters flavors have come around to supplant ango's yeah. story. almost every bar will have a bottle of ango they 're great. They provide a, a, a very distinct flavor that improves many a drink, but it's also wonderful that now, with uh, modern bartending, the kind of stuff going on in mm-hmm. Brooklyn and elsewhere, that we have a wider palette to paint with.
1: All right, Chris, you make your own bitters?
0: Um, yeah, we both do. It's uh, it's a it's a fun little exercise. I grow a lot. I get a lot in the garden, and um, one good use for bitters is just preserving stuff you've grown. So. You throw a bunch of stuff in alcohol, and then uh, in a couple months, you use it in a drink. When you're done with it, you make some more stuff and drink some more.
1: Well, what's the process like?
0: It's pretty straightforward. You get some high-proof alcohol. You get the ingredients you want, uh, like some orange peels to make orange bitters. You let it sit in there for a little while, and then uh, you're done. You drink. Are you going for a neutral alcohol or? It depends on what you're using. Sometimes we'll use rums. Sometimes we'll use brandies. But like, so you have celery bitters. One of the things we're dealing with here is celery bitters. Celery bitters. These are Lovage celery bitters. I was growing a ton of Lovage in my yard and uh, I didn't know what to do with it. Pete mentioned that he had a favorite restaurant that was making Lovage bitters. I said, the Lovage syrup. I said, great ideas. Let's make some bitters. So I picked a bunch of uh, Lovage, which is a a parsley-like herb, toasted some caramel, Put all of it in 150 proof neutral alcohol with some um, wormwood and some other spices and let it sit for a month. Forgot about it. Tasted. Said, what the hell is this? I said, oh, yeah, Pete, I forgot. I made you some Lovage Bitters. Gave it to him. He lost it for two months. Then he tried it and said, Jesus, this is good. How'd you make it? I said, I didn't write it down. I don't. Wow. It's like the oral tradition. It's like passed around the
1: monasteries of Europe. No one knows. They could get DNA experts yeah. to try to figure well, out the providence yeah. of this. I'm the
0: blind poet of uh, bitters. Yeah. It is true.
1: Also poetry. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get a waitress or waiter or server here at Hudson Clearwater where we do our interviews. Want to plug Hudson Clearwater? They never know we're coming. They always seem confused. But they're like, yeah, sit down. What, what are we going to order today? Where are we going to put our bitters? And what are we going to achieve? Okay, last last part first. Bliss.
3: All right, I'll give you that. <laughs> Pete usually does our ordering. Sure. So um, do you have Peychaud bitters? We do have those bitters. That's good. Woo-hoo. All right, Chris. You're going to have to get, You, you want to write the recipe on, an, on a napkin here?
0: Yeah, if you could just put some uh, Ryan, some sweet vermouth in a glass, and, uh, and we can bitter it up, right? Does that sound good? Well, we'll need the pay shots from them. Do you have a
1: button on the uh, on the menu thing that right, you press for that side our of bitters? Own little yeah, little
3: computerized yeah.
1: Uh, side no of No one's bitters, ever please. asked for a
0: side of bitters.
3: Jake, <laughs>
1: Pete, Elwood! We're
0: going to need a clean finger to stir it too. <laughs> sure, sure. What's your name? Grace.
1: Okay, good. Grace and bitters. This is very.
0: Metaphysical almost. Very good. Saint Salvatore. Saint Salvatore would be very proud of what we're doing today. He bless it. Thank you. No animals will be harmed. <laughs> Except the four of us. <laughs> All right. I brought for you to try today about forty different bitters of varieties and flavors. I'm just tasting them th- through to see what goes in the cocktail. This is a barkeep Swedish herb bitters. Ooh. You have to talk like the Swedish chef while you're trying them, if
1: you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Never the
0: I love just watching these grown men licking bitters off the side of the hand and saying burk, 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 burk,
1: burk. <laughs> yeah like if I tasted that I wouldn't know it was uh, an ingredient for a drink or something to cauterize a wound but it's it tasted really good <laughs> you know how beer has is measured in IBUs an international bitterness unit is bitters m- measured in bitterness units? They're measured in
0: hipster units. Yeah. yeah. You guys bit. are off the charts. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So then our waitress, Grace, returned, and the guys concocted a cocktail at our table using the suitcase of homemade bitters plus the side of showed bitters from the bar. The drink they made is called a Fourth Regiment. Here's a recipe. One ounce of rye whiskey... One ounce of sweet vermouth, one dash of orange bitters, one dash of Peychaud's bitters, and one dash of lovage, which is celery bitters. I took a sip.
0: We need Grace's finger.
1: Tangy, confident, and familiar, yet slightly removed, like the Canadians themselves.
0: Flavorful.
3: Getting those bitters nice? They should really be popping now. I think we got about, what, six drops of each?
0: Can you, can you pick up the taste of my New Jersey soil where the uh, herbs grow? Are you getting New Jersey soil? I, I,
1: I'm feeling the... I, I taste the loam, but not the topsoil. It's odd.
0: Fertilizer must be the key element there.
1: Yeah. It's funny because oh, for good. some reason... The visage of Chris Christie flashed across my head, and I was wondering why. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, bitter, New Jersey, there we go.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and, and lovage. Just because we have nothing but lovage for Chris Christie in New Jersey. Yeah. Took away our pensions. I mean, how could you not love Lo- it? Lovage cabbage.
1: So the Ryan Vermouth makes it pretty much, what, a Manhattan? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And then you add the bitters to it. Uh, is, is the Manhattan the perfect cocktail to do that with? What other cocktails work That's that way? That's a great
0: question for Pete.
3: Well there's certain cocktails that really amount to amazing templates. Not just for messing around with different spirits, but also for messing around with bitters. And at the very top of the list for bitters, for me anyway, for my money, would be the Manhattan and the Old Fashioned. People are very familiar with what the baseline tastes like, and that really helps you understand what the bitters are doing to the drink. And also the combinations themselves in an Old Fashioned and a Manhattan are simple and straightforward enough that the bitters just really have a chance to uh, be the center star in the show. Great. I agree. I agree.
1: Peter Thomas Fornitel and Chris Wirtz, the authors of Brooklyn Spirits here at Hudson Clearwater, experimenting with bitters, celery, and all other kinds. A rousing success. Thank you,
0: guys. Cheers. Thank you so much for having us. And
1: now the spiel. Public servant, private server. Journalist Ron Fournier of the National Journal calls Hillary Clinton a payphone candidate in an iPhone world. I would say... Her defensive posture is the classic raise the drawbridge, not invite the commoners to the palace grounds. For a lot of Democrats, I think that Hillary Clinton or the idea of a Hillary Clinton presidency is a little like the required course in college that you don't get around to until senior year. Yeah, 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 I'm going to get to it. Yeah, I know it'll be good for me. I'll probably learn a lot. But instead, what you do, you took that fun elective, introduction to hope and change, and now you're stuck and you kind of owe it to yourself you gotta elect Hillary, but it's not going to be fun. On the substance of all those emails that Hillary Clinton deleted because she didn't want to carry two phones, you know, her defense was, hey, we're all fighting the war on clutter, right?
2: Looking back, it would have been better if I simply used a second email account and carried a second phone. But at the time, this didn't seem like an issue.
1: I mean, really, this whole thing, it's just so simple. It's that simple explanation. That's why offering the explanation took eight days. A scathing SNL sketch. A week's worth of cable talk show fodder. An entire slate of Sunday shows with this as the central debate topic. That's why you had to have a hastily arranged news conference and a background that literally read Security Council of the United Nations to clear this up. Because really, it was just a simple understanding. Oopsie. Well... There are some substantive criticisms of what she said. So she says she deleted only personal emails, and we know that must be true because she says so. Her private server was secure, which we also know is true because, you know, she says so. The emails deleted were personal, like those between her and Bill. That's, of course, that's true because, you know, she says it's true, even though a Bill Clinton spokesman says the former president has only sent two emails in his entire life. We know that neither of them was to Lindsey Graham. Anyway, she didn't break the rules. The rules being defined, I guess, as what she says the rules are because another State Department employee was fired for breaking those same rules and because there has been a State Department rule since 2005 requiring State Department officials to use official email. I checked. The rule does not have a clause that says, unless Hillary says otherwise, But it was clear how Mrs. Clinton wished to frame all of this, because twice in that press conference, she used the just trying to lighten my purse defense.
2: Looking back, it would have been better for me to use two separate phones and two email accounts. I thought using one device would be simpler, and obviously it hasn't worked out that way.
1: Beyond the email issue, here are the issues for Hillary Clinton's chances of becoming president. It's extremely likely she's going to get the nomination. But after that, I wonder. I wonder because I have noted that in my lifetime as a cognizant human, the more likable candidate in the general election has always won. Carter was seen as a more likable fellow than Ford... Maybe in retrospect, Ford seems like a hell fellow, but then Carter seemed fresher and more likable. He won. Reagan more likable than Carter. Reagan more likable than Mondale. He won. George H.W. Bush, all right, not exactly the loosest dude on the dance floor, but more likable than Dukakis, but then Clinton was more likable than Bush, and Clinton was more likable than Dole, the hatchet man Dole, and George W. Bush, call him a doofus, call him a pike, or whatever you want to call him, but he was definitely a lot more fun and more likable than Al Gore or John Kerry, and Obama, extremely likable, even more so than John McCain, who turned a little sour, and Romney, who was Romney. The rule the more likable guy wins, that is true for the general. It's not true in the primaries, I should say. Ideology comes into play. Certain candidates with no shot of winning, really, like Mike Huckabee, those are actually likable guys. And primary voters are often more informed than the general election. So, therefore, in the general election, personality, likability can be a factor. I will acknowledge when I'm talking about likability extremely subjective. What the hell is likability? It's kind of like a Rorschach test, right? Can't using the word likability just be cover for justifying racism, justifying sexism? Yes, 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 and yes. And also, if you really love a candidate or that candidate's policies, that candidate's going to seem more likable to you. I also want to say that I don't think likability is the inverse of what we call negatives. So pollsters will tell you, pollsters ask, do you have a generally positive or negative opinion of this candidate? And someone like Hillary Clinton has very high negatives. She's very well known. She has higher positives than negatives, but very high negatives. But is that so important? I mean, we've only been asking about positives and negatives for 30 years, let's say, so we can't go back. But it seems to me that Abraham Lincoln had really high negatives. Kennedy had really high negatives. I can prove it. Both guys were shot. But I do think to get something done, to stand for something, especially in this highly politicized world, you have to probably piss people off. So I'm not necessarily talking about negatives. I mean, candidates collect negatives like cars on the Paris to Dakar rally collect dents. It goes with the territory. But issue after issue, where Mrs. Clinton is defensive or seen as imperious, it's going to be extremely off-putting to the still majority of voters who say that they would consider casting a ballot for her. It can help her. And complicating her is the fact that the media, the unbiased media, you know, the networks, the New York Times, CNN, the ones that aren't trying to put their thumb on the scale too much, they will always play up these sort of issues for a few reasons. One, they really are missteps. Two, the missteps involve communication and transparency and making reporters scramble for credentials. That will get a disproportionate amount of coverage. I've also noted that the nature of the media is to be really full-throated and big, bold, sometimes scathing in your analysis of the theatrics of a campaign. When it comes to policy, I think their definition of fairness, balance, objectivity, whatever you want to call it, I think it's more muted. So even if an analysis piece in a newspaper could make the point that Hillary Clinton's view of the steps the U.S. should take in Ukraine is much more sensible than the policy prescriptions of her rivals, that won't appear high up and boldly stated. But when you're talking about how she acts in a press conference and the theatrics thereof, you will get phrases like you did in the New York Times today saying that Clinton devolved into increasingly defensive responses that piece went on to note that she did not look happy. The fact is that Hillary Clinton and her team, their extreme aversion to openness, their single-minded message control, their almost paranoiac avoidance of improvisation, it is really off-putting to a public awash in Twitter and weaned on reality TV. But in the barbed and booby-trapped world of politics, it probably is the best way to carry out an agenda. That's Attention. And the question is, will her tactics on the way to gaining the presidency be so off-putting that she will never get the chance to be an effective president? And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi polls high on the measure Would you like to have a beer with her? Joe Meyer, managing producer, is net positive when respondents are asked, Who would you like to have a near beer or wine spritzer with? Andy Bowers, executive producer, is in the plus territory among those expressing an opinion on the rubric, Seems to care about the concerns of people like me. People like me, meaning listeners to the Panoply Network. Check out Panoply's entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. That's P-A-N. no, that's it. I'm only going to spell half the word now. I'll give you four-sevenths of the word. That's P-A-N-O, and I'm going to stop there, because you know how to spell panoply. But when you're on iTunes, give us the gist, a review, and subscribe in iTunes. Subscribe someone else who might like the gist in iTunes. You'll be doing them and us a favor. The gist was plagiarism in part from Abraham Lincoln's address before the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, Aristophanes, The Frogs, elements of the Mike and the Mad Dog show, and I
3: think a little Hocus Pocus by Focus. Hi, I'm Dan Kois. And I'm Allison Benedict. On this week's episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, Is Your Kid a Narcissist? We talk to a researcher who's studying how children become self-absorbed, plus it triumphs and fails, and more. Please search for Mom and Dad are Fighting on iTunes or visit iTunes.com slash Panoply.